This week in Retronauts, we teach Metroid how to crawl. everyone, and welcome once again to the most refined video games podcast, Retronauts. I'm your host, Jeremy Parrish, and this will... Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I couldn't do it. All uh, right. Nuts. I'm Jeremy, I know talk good, and we're going to talk about Metroid. I'm going to do it badly, and everyone else is going to save my bacon. They're going to do it better than me. Who we have this week, huh? I'm Bob Mackey, uh, U.S. Gamer Senior Editor and all-around Metroid uh, fan? Question right. mark? Okay, yeah. and... I'm Jose Otero from IGN, and thank you so much for having me, by the way. Oh, Metroid shucks. is one of my favorite games. Well, you are the um, Metroid, or you're the Nintendo guy at the biggest gaming website, so it seems like if anyone should be able to speak coherently about Metroid, it should be you. I hope so. Don't the let pressure's down. on. If, oh, you, if you blow it, it reflects sadly on IGN. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Preemptive apology. All right, so yeah, um, this is the latest in our series of sort of uh, remastered, rebooted. Yeah, we're doing a Retronauts reboot. That's it. Because we're all every HD. video game does. Yeah, you can see our pores now. We're hideous. Yeah, it's really <laughs> super cool. Um, obviously, we've had a Metroid episode before, but not uh, under the current site structure or podcast structure. Question. I'm sorry to interrupt. Was wasn't Metroid the first Retronauts? Like Retronauts Zero. Like that video oh, or something? Oh, yeah. That was that was that weird experiment. Um, it wasn't weird. It was really good. It was cool. It was like 20 yeah, minutes I watched long. that thing. I, I watched it. it. Yeah, on it that crappy video parts. player, too. Yeah, the crappy one-of.com video player. Mm. Who can forget? I remember it being really weird, but... No, I, I, as someone, honestly, truly, like as a friend, that was... And, and not even as a friend. As someone who didn't know you at the time. It was really good. And Scott Sharkey had his boots up. And I think that haunted him for years. Like, yeah, he had his like, boots up on the table. douchebag with his boots. I guess the weird part of it was that um, one of the the panelists was Nadia Oxford who Skyped in and it's really weird to have like a video uh, podcast where it's like a lot of people talking and then occasionally there's like a voice that comes in. I just remember her saying that the uh, the graphics in Metroid 2 looked like cabbage. Cabbage. That's that's the only thing I remember from that. That and Scott Sharkey's boots. Hmm. <laughs> so anyway, it's been a long time. A long, 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 long time. So we're doing another Metroid episode and <clears> – <throat> I guess there really hasn't been that much changed since then. It's been a desolate uh, space. There's been one new game. Yeah. And that's it. How unfortunate. Mm. So, yeah, the the question is kind of, um, is there anything new to say about Metroid? I don't know, but we're going to find out. Um, as I was saying, you know, now that, now that um, Metroid, uh, Metroid, now that Retronauts has sort of detached itself from uh, it's previous, you know, like the first hundred episodes or so, which all belong to IGN and not us. Whoops. Um, Sorry, guys. That's fine. That's not your fault. Jose, I've got Blame 20 Z- bucks in my wallet. I Let's make Z- a deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are going back and revisiting some of the key topics because, one, you know, it would be nice to have those in our catalog and, two, because it's been a long time since we've talked about these things. So I see no downside to it. And if three, this makes because you angry, we're passionate about them. Well, that's a given. Um, if this if this somehow angers you, it's fine. Hit pause, delete this episode in your player. I won't take it personally. Be sure to leave us an angry message on Twitter or on our website. I'll take that personally. Um, otherwise, kick back, enjoy, and let us talk about Metroid for you.
So, Metroid. It says right here in my notes, what is Metroid? I Metroid, learned something. Oh. Metroid is not the name of the woman who is the <laughs> protagonist of the series. It's the name of the jellyfish that she blows up with ice beams and missiles. I read something today, Jeremy, for the first time. Maybe you can tell me if this is right or just BS. Uh, I, I read that Metroid came from Metro and Android, Metro being like the underground like subway system and then Android being duh, a robot. Is that true? That's like, correct. It just was on Wikipedia. I'd never, I'd never seen it before. Yeah, Sakamoto has said that. Wow, okay. Weird. I, I think everyone assumed it was just a mi- mi- like a mangling of meteoroid or something up until then. Nope. Weird. It is, um, it is a portmanteau. I had no idea. Okay, cool. Food for thought. Because Metro as in like the subway tunnels. Right, right. Because the, the game takes place underground. So I think, you know, as he was putting the game together and, and – uh, and, you know, creating these underground labyrinths, he was thinking, like, oh, the subway system. But there are no androids in it. But are there? Samus yeah. looks like an android. Okay. My guess is okay. probably at the beginning she actually was a robot. And then at the end they were like, what if the robot took off its head and there was a girl inside? You were right about that. And I did bikini. read that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now this makes sense. Yeah. At first I was a little lost. I think halfway through, like, let's make it a woman. No one will oh. think of it. Yeah. But for someone who doesn't know, uh, Sakamoto is referring to Yoshio oh, yeah, yeah. Sakamoto, sorry, sorry. who is? Uh, the original director of Metroid and I guess currently the head of the, the franchise. Although nothing has happened with it for five years, yeah, so he, it's, it's hard to know. He's an interesting fellow because he has his hands in the WarioWare series. He has his hands in Tomodachi Collection slash Tomodachi Life. He has a very wide palette of the style of games that he's worked on for whatever reason. Yeah, if we go back, I mean, there's we can do a little bit of a Nintendo history lesson here. Um, you know, at the very beginning, there was one group of designers at Nintendo, Nintendo R&D 1. And basically around the time of Super Mario Brothers, they went, you know, the, the Famicom launched in Japan in 1983. And um, so there started to become more complex needs in terms of software development. So they started to build up teams. Uh, around the time of Super Mario Brothers, Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka split off into, and Koji Kondo um, split off into Entertainment Analysis, Entertainment Analysis Division, EAD. Um, and... R&D 1 kind of kept going, and they were, you know, sort of the ones who were figuring out new technology and new stuff. Uh, That was all under Gunpei Yokoi, and Yoshio Sakamoto was one of the people who worked for Yokoi uh, under uh, under R&D 1. And if you're familiar with Yokoi, you know that he is primarily one of the main people responsible for a lot of the philosophies to hardware uh, at Nintendo for the most part, right? Like cheap and expensive, sort of looking at ways to not – sort of get too wrapped up in high-cost technology for a consumer. Right. He developed some Nintendo hardware, um, Game & Watch, um, Game Boy, Virtual Boy. But even the things he didn't design generally were kind of built with his tenants in mind. The, the NES certainly was. Uh, it was meant to be a very inexpensive system, but as capable as possible. So it was basically like a ColecoVision, um, but cheaper. And That's right. He was behind Game & Watch too, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, and he was – wasn't he hired back when they were a toy company? He was back from sort of back the electronic – Back yeah. Yeah, electronic He helped make them into a toy company. That's right. His, uh, his little goofy invention, the Ultra Hand, that telescoping like – grabbing fist thing yep. was Nintendo's first big hit. Yeah, and you see that thing in, in video oh, games yeah. left and right, but made by Nintendo. Every once in a while, they t- toss a nod to it. So so for the longest time, people were like, oh, Metroid was created by Gunpei Yokoi because his name was like the you know, the producer of the game and the credits. But really, Yokoi was more sort of managerial 
even at that point, you know, he had been with Nintendo for 20 odd years. So he was not sitting in the trenches designing video games by hand. That was his underlings, such as Sakamoto. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sakamoto had uh, been with the company for a little while at that point by the time Metroid came out in 1986. Um, and he had worked on some of the early black box Famicom games, NES games, uh, one of which was Wrecking Crew, uh, that kind of like weird puzzly game with the the villain named Foreman Spike who almost certainly <laughs> yeah. is kind of like the progenitor of Wario. So yeah, Sakamoto and R&D1 in general were always kind of the experimental, like let's do new and weird things side of Nintendo EAD with with Miyamoto were like, let's do grand masterpieces and invent new kinds of gameplay and then perfect it. So they're kind of like two counterparts. The weird stuff is R&D1, the sort of polished mainstream, everyone will love this, it's a fun toy for the kids. That was EAD. So Metroid falls into that kind of weird experimental stuff. And if you look at it, it is a pretty weird game. I mean, oh, yeah. it's very un-Nintendo-like if you look at the original Metroid. Um, There's no cute avatar. There's no sort of... No, it's very like serious science fiction. And they had done a little bit of that. Um, You know, there was Mock Rider, which Mm -hmm. was kind of like a Mad Max-ish sort of riding a motorcycle (laughs) in an outrun pole position. That's the one that time constantly forgets. Like no one talks about Mock Rider ever. Well, I just talked about Mock Rider. Yeah. No, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Sakamoto worked on that. But, you know, like I'm I'm just saying there was a little bit of precedent for the sci-fi in, um, uh, in in Nintendo's catalog, but it was still pretty uncommon. So Metroid was originally designed for the Famicom Disk System, which was kind of what Nintendo wanted their next hardware platform to be. They had the Famicom for a while, and it had been a success, but they wanted more capacity and rewritable content. Mm-hmm. So they came out with the Famicom Disk System, and it you know had more memory capacity. So Metroid was a bigger game than anything Nintendo had published to that point except Zelda. Yep. And really Metroid was kind of a combination of, you know, a Mario platformer and Zelda adventure. Yeah. But Metroid, I think, was really interesting because um, it it tried to take the complexity and depth of a Zelda-type game and make it work as an action game. There are no menus in, in Metroid. You know, Zelda has the subscreen where you can pick what tools you're using. Metroid doesn't have that. It has a pause screen and it has, you know, the select button will switch weapons for you. But that's it. And you don't talk to anyone. You don't meet anyone right. who is a friendly mm. in that world. Yep. Everyone is out to get you. Yep. And at the same time, you still have to use these tools to navigate the world. Um, you're getting weapons, but the weapons double and function as tools. Like you get the ice beam. Okay, that makes you uh, – it gives you the ability to freeze enemies and take them out of the action so you won't get overwhelmed or swarmed by a bunch of foes. It's essential to taking out the the titular uh, monsters, the Metroids, at the end. You can't kill them without freezing them. Yeah, I can see that as as an extension of R&D1's, like, toy-like focus where they remove that interface, like, selecting weapons. You're just, like, sticking new things onto, like, an action figure kind of, like, making it more powerful. Kind of, More functional. But the genius part of the design did come out in that you'd see doors you couldn't open and ask yourself, what do I need to get there? Or right. you'd see spaces you couldn't exactly go and you'd yeah, wonder. Yeah, that's like, what I'm saying is yeah, the, the, the ice beam, you know, it, it, it works as a weapon, but it also works as a tool because that's when right. you freeze an enemy, it becomes fixed in place and harmless. And so it becomes a step. That's right. Like you said, the red doors, you know, um, you acquire missiles, which are more powerful by far than your regular blaster, 
but the missiles also let you open the red doors yeah. and so on and so forth. Bombs allow you to hit enemies on the floor, but they also let you blow open certain passages that otherwise would be inaccessible. But definitely a risky game even by like 1980, what are we talking, 86, 87 here? 86. Yeah, 86 mm-hmm. standards um, in that this is still an era of video games where there isn't such a thing as tutorials and there isn't a way to really guide you through that world. And so it expected a lot of the player. You had to kind of sit there and just draw out maps and figure out where am I supposed to go and what am I supposed to do? Because nothing tells you. Yeah, Metroid expected a lot of um, trial and error from players. Um, It doesn't do a good job always of guiding you to where you need to go. It kind of does. I think it does some things that are very subtle and very good, like... um, yeah, I've written about this, but you know, when you first uh, start the game, your natural inclination, if you play platformers of the era, is to run left or right. Mm-hmm. So you start running to the right, and you go through a door. You fight some enemies, go through another door, and then you come to this this low hanging wall, and there's a little gap at the bottom, but you can't get through it, and that's as far as you can get, and there's no other way to get forward. So. The only thing you can do is run to the left, which until that point, you might not even have realized that you could do because Super Mario Brothers didn't let you run to the left. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah. It was ratchet scrolling. It was fixed. But you run to the left, and eventually, you know, the only thing you can do is run past the beginning point, and there's this little alcove past there. It's a very small area, but it's just this small alcove where there's an item, and you pick up the item, and suddenly you have the ability to roll into a ball, and you can roll underneath that, that low-hanging wall. Yep. So... Right there in like five minutes, the game has taught you, hey, you need to run forward and, you know, run to the right to explore, but you can't complete the game just by going forward. You have to explore. You have to backtrack. And also, there are these tools that let you do new things, and you need to find these in order to complete the game. It almost feels like a long troll because it is across multiple screens. Whoa. I know you're Excuse me. <laughs> we have GLaDOS in here now. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Sorry, I was trying something weird with a ringtone. Uh, no, but going. what was most interesting to me is it almost feels like a long troll. Like you go across multiple screens. You pass through like multiple areas. They even show you, I think one of the screens in between, that there is sort of an area underneath. like part yeah, you of can the see world. an enemy crawling yeah, down there, but you can't get down yeah, there. Yeah, and you can't get down there. And you're saying to yourself, well, what do I need to do? But at that point in the game, you still don't understand that this is going to be more of an exploration-based adventure game than anything else. Um, so you go across multiple screens, you pick this thing up. It, it just almost feels like trolling when you think about that they could have done that very quickly, be it something that you needed to pick up, but instead yeah, picked that I don't, I don't that see instead. it as trolling. I see it as kind of drawing you in and then saying, no, wait, stop. It's it's getting you invested. Definitely. And then it, I think that makes the lesson more profound. Um, and the, the rest of the game isn't necessarily a, as good at doing that as that opening part. That's right. But that opening part does show that they were aware that, hey, we're asking a lot of players and, you know, we're not going to tell them here's where you go, there's where you go. But we can we can nudge them. We can teach them to explore and to discover and, you know, they will pick up the abilities beyond that on their own. And, you know, it it took me months of playing it, but eventually I did. I figured out, oh, here's all the things I need to do, and I finished the game, and, yeah, that was the first game I ever beat, and it took me forever. But, you know, it was very satisfying, and it probably helped instill this love of exploratory action games in me. Yeah, and you definitely get a rush from finding these different tools and these abilities. Like, they have that whole little moment where you hear just that token theme song, Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, what did I get now? What cool Mm -hmm. tool 
am I going to get to use? And one of the best ones being the screw attack, which through most of the game, you're trying to avoid enemies when you jump. And then now you get to go on the offensive when mm-hmm. you jump and you can sort of hit them with lightning bolts or energy or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is like this compact RPG experience. You're running around shooting stuff, but, you know, there's this constant empowerment. And there's even a little bit of choice. Like you can get the ice beam or you can get the wave beam. And and the wave beam is actually much more powerful than the ice beam. And if you know some tricks, you actually don't need the ice beam, ice beam to navigate the world. But then you get to the end and you're like, oh, I can't beat these monsters without the ice beam. Right. Yeah, but it's also very creaky, right? Because if you end up on a screen that had too many monsters, much like games of that era where the game could, you know, the system can barely handle what's happening and you'd get like really bad slowdown and you'd see a lot of enemy flickering and you has, almost had to write that stuff off. Like yeah, most I mean, games no, that's just, yeah, that's yeah. just the, the limitations of the platform. I Absolutely. mean, even beyond that, you don't even have to have a lot of enemies on screen. If you run too fast... Like, the, the way the engine draws uh, game graphics, like, if you run too fast, it'll have palette glitches, and you'll get these, like, random miscolored spots in the, in the environment. And, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, like, they were, they were really pushing the, the Famicom and yeah. the Famicom Disk system to its limits. The rooms are stored in the memory in a weird order, too. Like, I was watching a YouTube video that was explaining it, and it's like, I, I, I could be a little bit wrong in how I'm paraphrasing this, but it's like, a, a vertical room has to be next to a horizontal room. It can't break that flow. And, like, some vertical rooms are secretly horizontal rooms. They're just, like, mapped in a certain mm-hmm. way. Just, like, it's a weird way they're trying to cram as much as they could onto the cart so they can reuse data. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you kind of get that same thing going on with Kid Icarus, which is the the sort of companion game. Kid Icarus wasn't made by uh, Sakamoto, but it used a lot of the same assets and technology. And uh, the guy who made Kid Icarus, I think Okada was his name? Um, went on, he was part of R&D 1 too, and he made like the Mario Land games. So, you know, between him and Sakamoto, you have like this evolution of Mario and or Metroid and Kid Icarus to Mario to Wario to WarioWare to Rhythm Heaven to like it's, it's definitely the weird side of Nintendo. But um, yeah, like Kid Icarus had that sort of like you go up, up, up. For some levels, and then it's just side-scrolling for others. Yeah. I wonder if that was a limitation of the disc system itself, because ultimately that's where both games came from before they became carts. I don't. I don't think it was a limitation of the disc system. Um, I I know I've played some disc system games. Oh yeah, Simon's Quest is on disc system, and mm. it doesn't have anything like yeah. that. It, mm. it allows free scrolling in that's all right. directions. But you know, it, it was you know, that was like two years after Metroid's, or one year. I don't know, a year and a half. Yeah. So. It, w- it was just, you know, they were kind of creating video game concepts on the fly at that point. Everyone back in the 80s was just, like, making things up as they went. <laughs> you were either cloning someone else's popular idea and playing it safe and being unimaginative, or you were out there on the bleeding edge on the frontier and just hoping to God that whatever you put together would work and be fun. Yep. Uh, Metroid was definitely of the latter. It was not a clone of anything that I can think of. Um, you know, it wasn't the first sort of open-ended platformer, but there weren't a lot by that point. I mean, Pitfall 2, um, there's maybe a couple of others. You know, the the not the MSX, the ZX Spectrum had a lot of those kind of like Jet Set Willy type games, 83, 84. Um, But Metroid definitely felt bigger, more polished, more complex, uh, more consistent, Mm -hmm. uh, more fairly designed than, uh, than the stuff you'd see on Spectrum. I mean, all respect to... The, the UK PC scene of the 80s. But, like, those games were 
just designed to be really, really brutal and unfair. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Metroid is kind of the opposite. Like it's it's actually kind of tough to die in Metroid. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who's been playing the game for 30 years, but um, <laughs> like you really have to work at it. Once you start finding energy tanks and missile expansions and you get the Varia, um, you're just a very powerful character. Yeah. And, you know, you, your health is measured not in like, you know, a, a heart or two, but in an increments of 100. And enemies hit you for different values, maybe like, you know, at the lowest, it's four points of health uh, mm-hmm. if you have the Varia and you're in the, the opening area. And, uh, you know, if you have 500 hit points, that's our 499, you can take a lot of hits from those guys before you go down. Yeah. And, and you, there is some challenge at the very end with the Metroids themselves, which are these really, really huge jellyfish things that fly around and very quickly will grab onto you and start sucking your energy at a very rapid clip. Yeah. And you can watch your... Like I, I almost feel like the the nu- the numeric uh, <coughs> sorry the numeric display for Samus's health the main character Samus we haven't even talked about her um, <laughs> is um, was was done that way specifically so that when the Metroids grab you and start draining your health you can watch those numbers quickly count down and get the sense of panic mm. like they could have represented it visually or something but watching watching your numbers just yeah, run yeah. down really quickly creates this real sense of dread and like, oh Reminds my god, of, I've got to get this guy off of me. Reminds me of Earthbound a little bit in the boss battles, you know, or when you take like a critical hit, you just see the numbers spinning, you know, and you have yeah. to do something like immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in the Metroids themselves, once you realize that they're that deadly, when they come out, the, even the way they move inspires sort of like sort of fear in you. Like they're very jittery, they're very fast. Mm-hmm. They sort of will quickly like suction yeah, cup they, straight to you. Yeah, just, they they really <laughs> fixate on you and. Like there's nothing worse than being on top of a tiny platform mm-hmm. and having one right beneath you. Oh. And you know that as soon as you run over to the side, it's going to swing around yep. and jump up to you. So you have to really just split-second timing on yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. No, um, and it, it, you know, you, you talked about how polished it was. But I think the other thing that struck out or stood out to me as a kid was the soundtrack. I mean the soundtrack was incre- like really, really, really good. Like I hadn't – I still feel like Nintendo games sort of – informed my just my opinions of soundtracks in general in games like I feel like their games put a lot more effort there um, but what Hip Tanaka did with Metroid's music was really really good and ahead of its time yeah I mean some of the early Nintendo games had a good song or two you know like the balloon fight balloon trip theme is is memorable and addictive and of course Super Mario Brothers has really um, you know, like two really great themes that everyone knows. Uh, but Metroid, I I can't think of another game before that that really had such a varied and rich soundtrack that, that you know, went beyond just the tip, typical happy calliope music of video games but tried to create an atmosphere. It really, it really was uh, something else. And it, it helped that it was on this system, like it was specifically designed for the Famicom Disk system, like I said, and that had an extra sound channel over the NES. So, you know, if you hear the Japanese version of the soundtrack, it's really good. Mm. The American version is really good too, but it lacks a little something. There's that extra channel and a little richness to the sound that, that I really – we, we kind of missed out on. Um, but even so, even without that extra sample channel, it still sounds really rich and really moody and uh, really sets the stage for the game. So it, I, it, was, it was a – you know, Nintendo really upped the game there. I only rented this game as a kid and I think if I would have – 
had it in my possession like you, Jeremy, I would have played more of it. But it was kind of like a scary experience to me at, at like seven or eight because it was not like this happy-go-lucky <clears throat> world, like uh, just the random beeps and boops and just like weird spaciness of it all just kind of made it off-putting, you know. It, it wasn't as welcoming as like Mario or whatever or Zelda. When you say random beeps and boops, you mean like the uh, the power-up rooms like where you beep, get that boop, 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 and there's that like one. Yeah, it just was kind of like unsettling, you know? yeah. No, and uh, yeah, props to Hip Tanaka for for that for the amazing work on that soundtrack. I, I found it interesting that he didn't have like mu- at least classical sort of music training, but he was a sound engineer and he was very into you know his his sort of like a, what was it sort of like trance you would say like mm. music over time. Um, but we haven't talked about Samus yet and Samus Aran, which I guess depending on if you played this game in Japan or if you played this game in America, you had sort of different input on when you found out who Samus was. Well, no, you, you found out the same way, was either it? way, um, if you played it in Japanese or in English, or, you know, with a Japanese or English manual, you didn't know Samus was a woman until the very end. If you beat the mm. game in, under a certain time limit, then she would take off her helmet or possibly take off all of her armor and reveal, yes, there's a, there's a nougaty female underneath. <laughs> um, Do we know where the... With bouncy hair. Yeah, very, very, like, I don't know. Just great got, 80s hair, right? It's got 80s yeah. anime hair. Yeah, 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 it does. Do we know where the name Samus came from? It's so strange. I did have, Has anyone ever know. asked about that? Okay, I'm just curious. Yeah. It might be out there, that information, but I really don't know. Um, but yeah, the, the Japanese manual, because Japanese, um, it's a very gender-neutral language. Uh, gender, well, no, that's not true. Um, it doesn't have gender-specific pro- pronouns. Instead... Um, Gender is more reflected in the speaker, the the tone you use, the words you use, um, the way you conjugate sentences. So it could be ambiguous and just talk about the bounty hunter and just refer to Samus, you know. And it was a third person, just, just kind of generic term. In America, you have to, you know, in English, you have to say he or she, otherwise you say they, which is improper, or it, which sounds weird. Actually, they so, is becoming popular now. Uh, they's been, they, they has been popular, but it's still grammatically incorrect. They has but, been. <laughs> they has but, been. You know, because, oh, no, what are we doing? <laughs> because English doesn't have, you know, a proper gender-neutral pronoun that isn't yeah, it. Yeah, got screwed. Which is, um, you don't call people it. So, um, yeah, I guess that's just a natural evolution of the language to meet our needs. Um, anyway, so the, the manual referred to Samus as he. So that made the... Uh, In the U.S. Yeah. So that, that made... Um, the surprise twist more of like, oh, there was deliberate deception happening. Whereas in uh, the Japanese version, it was more, to my knowledge, I've, I've asked about this and have been told, like, it doesn't actually refer to Samus as male. Mm. So but that was just like information was being omitted rather than, uh, you know, information being deliberately obfuscated. But that manual, man, like pages of story, (laughs) which for a Nintendo game at the time, I think the only other game I can think of that I was reading the manual to find out more about the world was Zelda. Yeah. Metroid had like four pages uh, with color photos. Were they color? I I don't remember. I'm pretty sure they were. Um, And I just remember pouring through it and going, wow, I'm a bounty hunter. This sounds so cool. And then that one day on the playground where some kid told me, it's a girl. I'm like, what do you mean it's a girl? That's not true. What you t- How do you know that? What are you talking about? <laughs> that, was a, that was a contemporary reference. Then, it was. Right? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, the, uh, the packaging, um, at least in the U.S., um, it, it was different in Japan because the game was for the disc system. So it was kind of limited in what the, what the packaging could be. 
But Metroid was the second game released here, I think, for the uh, for the line? for the NES yeah. that went beyond the black box design, which was very simple, like black and white manuals. The first to come out was Zelda, which had that silver or the gold box mm, and the gold right. cartridge and a fold out map and a really really thick manual, that's full right. color. Um, Metroid didn't have the map and it didn't have a fancy colored cartridge, but the box was silver instead of black, and um, because it was a password pack, and that was a separate series. <sighs> that's oh. what that meant. Okay, I didn't know that's the what that password. signified. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. P-A-K, P-A-K. Pour one out yeah. for the password yeah. pack. Uh, we don't miss passwords. Um, but yeah, the manual was was dense. It was yeah. very thick, and uh, there was a lot to read in there. I mean, yeah. even even the Super Mario Brothers manual was interesting. Learning about how all the bricks you were breaking were actually citizens of the Mushroom Kingdom, Don't, and you're a terrible person. Just stop it. <laughs> no, but but uh, the password system was especially frustrating in Metroid. Uh, well, first of all, on the disk system, they had a save system that was similar to Zelda. So mm-hmm. you were able to have an individual save file. And I'm not sure when it saved or how it saved. Did it save when you died? That's that what I was it, was, it was when you died. Yeah, yeah. It you would save, save manually. Yeah, it would save manually when you died. But like when the, you get a password in the American version, that's when you would save that's in what Japan, I thought. Japanese. Yeah. So, but when you got a password, in, so when you died, you'd get a password in the American version. But the font on the passwords, it was so hard to sometimes it's, tell yeah. the letter or number that you were staring at. And this was in a time where if you wrote it wrong, you just lost hours of progress. Yeah, and the the passwords, you know, it was it was a clever hack mm-hmm. in order to bring this save feature functionality to America without the expense of a battery because that was, I'm sure, very expensive back then. And so only Zelda got one initially. It took years for us to see another battery game. Um, passwords basically allowed you to, it was kind of like a, a game shark, basically. It was, uh, you know, you weren't, getting a secret code to uh, like, here's the here's the handshake. The game didn't know like the code that it was giving you. Basically, the code represented parameters of your character and what you'd accomplished in the world and that sort of thing. And then I'm sure there was like a, you know, a, a, what do you call it? Like a key, you know, uh, authentication yeah, key, sure. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was basically uh, 24 characters and you could draw from a set of full upper and lowercase alphanumeric characters plus numbers plus some symbols. It was <laughs> it was a lot. And yeah, they they didn't really think hard about the ambiguity between G and six and five and S and zero and O. So yeah, and or an uppercase I and lowercase L. So you really had to be paying very careful attention and be very, very meticulous about recording your codes. Yeah, but uh, one other thing about Metroid that we should definitely talk about that's super important was the ending and the notion that once you defeated Mother Brain, it was an escape sequence. It was, mm. hey, this everything's about to blow up and you need to leave now. Yeah, fighting, fighting to the Mother Brain through the Metroids was tough. Fighting the Mother Brain was really hard because she's in this room where you're on a tiny platform, That's right. she's on a platform, there's lava on either side of you, there's these little guns shooting at you, there's these little round things that are constantly responding and floating at you. You had to take her out. And if you could accomplish that, then you had 90 seconds or whatever to escape up a shaft and these tiny little platforms <sighs> that, that were specifically designed to be really tricky. Like you had to know how to control Samus at that point because if you had, you know, the, the screw attack, if you jumped while pressing forward, she would do the spin jump thing. So you had to jump much more carefully by jumping straight up and then 
changing the velocity and direction of your jump. That's right. It, it was, was it was really tricky. It was a cool subversion of the idea of a boss because the boss was stationary and kind of helpless, but the environment itself was what the issue was, you know, what you had to overcome. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she was a computer, so <clears throat> computers can't really do that much. And she also had the voice of one of the four tops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was so reminiscent of, I mean, everyone loves to cite the inspiration for Metroid with uh, with Alien, right? And with that sequence of setting up a self-destruct and what that sort of means um, and how you respond to that. Unfortunately, though, this is not one you could have turned off. Then again, Ridley, Ripley couldn't turn off the one, I guess, in, in Alien either. God damn you, mother! <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, it was still very... Very special. And only if you finish the game under certain conditions would you even know, would you see that Samus was a female, Yeah, in fact. It was it was really tough. But learning that Samus was a woman was um, was pretty cool. And if you beat the game in uh, enough time, you could play as Samus just in her, like, uh, unitard yeah. underneath. And uh, you, if you could beat the game in enough time, like a small enough time, without getting the Varia to cut damage in half then you would discover that her hair was not naturally green but actually brown. Hmm. Like I played the game enough that I beat every possible permutation and wow. got all the secrets and everything. And I was like, oh, huh. she's, uh, she's brunette. How, how about that? That's crazy. Definitely. Um, yeah, so that was, that was kind of a watershed moment for, for the NES in a lot of ways. I still remember the the initial experience of playing the game for the first time and, and just expecting a game like Mario where it would be broken into levels and it would be very like stage one, stage two, stage three, not really getting that you have to explore. And, you know, I got past the, the part where you have to roll underneath and I kept going and then you get to the tall vertical shaft and it just keeps going and going. And I was like, when am I going to get to the end of this level? And I finally found some doors and it kept going, and then on the other side of the door, there was another shaft going up and down. And I was like, <laughs> I, I don't understand. Eventually, I made it to, you know, uh, an elevator that took me to another area. But it didn't, like, it wasn't like, oh, you beat the level. Here's your score. It was just you descend to another level, and there's more to explore there. And it was just it just felt so big and so overwhelming. But it was mysterious and alluring, and I really wanted to see more of it the music was great and the the world had really good graphics for the time and Mm -hmm. it was just interesting and uh so i kept playing and beating my head against it until eventually i had a breakthrough and then you know eventually uh i got that breakthrough and beat the game and And carefully wrote down passwords (laughs) oh yes i did but uh, But the the password feature was great too because it has it like created this meta culture around um (laughs) around metroid where People would find like weird passwords, basically, which were just you know um, entering words that just happened to to check out okay. Sure. But you know the whole uh, Justin Bailey thing um, has become very famous. Yeah, it was it was just um, this kind of interesting little wrinkle that evolved out of out of a necessary compromise they had to make to the game. Yeah, I will say though, um, looking back on it, and of course, Metroid is a game that doesn't age well. But uh, 
especially the boss fights were something that I look back on now and I'm like, these are kind of disappointing. They're like, there's not they're much. Bad, yeah. yeah, they're so bad because uh, it's ultimately they're missile sponges. That's yeah. what you're doing. Well, R- Just Ridley pump them with missiles. <laughs> Ridley is so terrible because he has two possible patterns to his fireballs that he shoots, <laughs> and if he he gets into the pattern where they shoot up, mm-hmm. you can stand underneath them. And they'll like you can stand right at his feet, and he just hops up and down, spewing fireballs over your head, and you just sit there shooting him, and he, he like that's there's no threat to it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah. like we're jumping ahead, but I feel like that mini crate you fight in Super Metroid is like a parody of the Metroid crate fight because it's the same thing, and it's just as much of a pushover. It's it's a parody, oh, and also just like a. Oh, here you go. Here's the bot. No, just kidding. Yeah, I mean the it is real too. boss is way different. It almost feels like. Um, you know, in uh, Fantastic Four comics, whenever someone uh, punks Doctor Doom, another writer who likes Doctor Doom more will come in and be like, no, that wasn't the real Doctor Doom. <laughs> that was a Doom bot. The real Doctor Doom would never go down like that. Thank God it's not a clone, you know. And they, they had mm-hmm. to go in when Squirrel Girl beat Doctor Doom and say, no, that was really Doctor Doom. That was not a Doom bot. Wow. Squirrel Girl beat the real Doctor Doom. So that's their a wizard did it excuse. Basically. It was a sure. robot. It was, okay. a, it was sure. a Doom bot. <laughs> Um, if, if we're ready to talk about Metroid 2, I think uh, – I mean, are we? I, Go for I it. I think we should. I think what, what sort of blew my mind um, was that Metroid 2 was a Game Boy game. Like, it was something that young Jose Otero did not expect at all. Like, a sequel. The next sequel to the game that I loved up and down – was it a Game Boy game? What are you talking about, Nintendo? I felt the same way when I got the Nintendo Power issue with that on the cover. Mm. It's like R- R- Return of Samus. I felt betrayed. I was like, I don't have a Game Boy. Oh. <laughs> ah, how could they do this to me? But that may have blown young Jose's mind. But does it make sense to Nintendo expert adult Jose? No. That's what I'm saying. Even then, I was like, why are you putting this here? It's, it all gets back to the people who made the game. Yeah. Nintendo R&D 1 created Metroid. And Nintendo R&D 1 created the Game Boy. And Nintendo R&D 1 were the biggest supporters of Game Boy internally at Nintendo. Nintendo R&D 1 worked with, like, uh, Paxsoftnica and Intelligent Systems to make Game Boy software, but they were the ones who made almost all the games. I think, you know, eventually Miyamoto and EAD started making some games. Um, Zelda, I think Link's Awakening was the first Game Boy game that his team put together, and that was yeah. 1993, That was Koizuka, Yeah. Well, Koizumi worked on that game, though. Yeah, I mean, it was it was yeah. like, it was the EAD crew. It was the EAD people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Miyamoto was, like, executive producer on it or mm-hmm. producer. Um, and then, you know, Miyamoto, I think, directly designed Mole Mania and uh, Donkey Kong 94. What a strange choice, Mole Mania. I love Mole Mania. <laughs> great, though. I mean, yeah, so great, great, though. When, when, you know, when EAD started working on Game Boy, they did great work. That's but right. R&D 1 did most of the heavy lifting, and it made sense because they they stopped working on Famicom games, I think, like after 91 or so, and uh, yeah. stopped working on the NES and really focused their attention on Game Boy for a while. So, yeah, they, they took their premiere series, Metroid, and they put it on Game Boy. But history looks at Metroid 2 Return of Samus as a miss, right? Like, it, it wasn't – it didn't come together quite as well as – I mean, I'm to sorry, some I'm, degree, I think I'm partly responsible for that, and you I, are partly responsible. <laughs> for I, I that. apologize for that. Yeah, but um, but I, I mean, I think a lot of your criticisms have been fair in in terms of what Metroid Two: Return of Samus did get wrong. Sure, it did get some things wrong, but I think it also deserves a more nuanced look. Definitely, um, I think you know they they kind of blew it in in some senses, but. In hindsight, I think it makes sense for the game to be more linear than mm. the original Metroid because, you know, the, the nature of the Game Boy doesn't lend itself to these big open exploratory experiences. No, that's I fair. think having, you know, 
basically every area kind of is centered around a save point. And you kind of use that as your base of exploration. So you venture out and you find the Metroids to blow up and then go back and save. And, you know, you have a counter telling you, oh, well, it's, you know, this far until you're done killing all the Metroids and a new area just opened up. But I think I think what bothered me more about Metroid 2, not its linearity, but more that those boss fights were not memorable at all. Like it was still cra- what, sort what of crappy they? boss fight design. The they were Metroid Metroids, would ha- just yeah, different me- Metroids, right? Mutations yeah. of Metroids. They would hatch, come out. And so the story to Metroid 2, Return of Samus, is Samus returns to SR-388. Well, she doesn't, to just she doesn't return. She'd actually never been to SR-388. Oh, sorry. That's right. That's the Metroid. I don't know why world. they got Return of Samus. But yeah, I guess mm. that's, Where'd that come that's from? where that come from. But she goes there to eradicate the Metroid. She's a woman on a mission, like through most of the through the entire game. Yeah, it's like if uh, if an aliens um, Ripley hadn't been recruited to go find the colonists on LV two forty seven or whatever, but four twenty six. Four twenty six. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But instead, Impressive. had been hired to go there with the Marines and just blow everything away. That would be Metroid two. Yeah, it's a, a more aggressive approach. But basically. Yeah, like the Metroid life form was found by the space pirates and they decided to clone it and use it as their weapon uh, under the control of Mother Brain. And that's what Metroid was, was Samus putting a stop to that plan. And then, you know, I guess they decided, well, there's more of those where that came from. So let's go get rid of all of them. A whole nine yards. Yeah, (laughs) let's just do it. And Metroid 2 is interesting because it really, like it's, it's it's the inflection point for the rest of the series. Super Metroid's plot comes out of it. Metroid Fusion is very closely tied to, oh, yeah. to Metroid 2. No, definitely. Bob, my, you were going to say. My problem with the space pirates in this game is that like within the games themselves, they're just, they're just giant bugs. But then in the story, it's like they, they're top scientists clone the Metroids. Like what are they doing with their giant claws? Like typing on a computer <laughs> yes. and like lifting up test tubes and stuff? It just it drives me nuts. Doing research. Yeah, that's very though. I think it fits sort of the 80s comics and, and sort of 80s, uh, I don't know. I want to see one of those giant bugs in a lab coat and with a clipboard. Then I'll buy it. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you didn't see one in Metroid Prime, honestly. Or in Fusion. They have the, the dudes running around the scientists in yeah. lab coats. There could have been a space pirate. I will say, though, another thing that struck me uh, as a kid seeing Metroid Prime 2 or experiencing, uh, excuse me, Metroid 2 Return of Samus was the box. Seeing the upgraded suit. So the mm. Varia suit, is that how it's pronounced? I'm terrible sure. at some pronunciation. I think Varia. It's, Varia. It's, spo- it's supposed to be Barrier. Yeah. That they so the Varia over. suit uh, on the cover of Metroid on this silver box already looked cool and in the manual looked really cool as well. But when you saw these big shoulder pads yeah. and you saw sort of these upgrades, I was just like, Samus oh, I'm is a in. linebacker now. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I'm totally here for this. And uh, you do get it at some point later in the game. You can barely notice because of the black and white visuals well, or the, the grainy visuals. You know, the the, the changed silhouette for Samus mm-hmm. was a reflection of the limitations of the Game Boy. In, in uh, Metroid, getting the very uh, changed your color mm-hmm. from, like, dark yellow to light yellow, or I think, what color was it? I don't know. Anyway, your color changed when you got the Varia, but you can't do that on Game Boy. So instead of changing the color, they changed the shape of her shoulders and basically made her look bulkier and more imposing when she became more powerful. Yeah, but the transition to a portable series definitely took away a lot of the um, the ambient, you know, feeling of dread of that world. Like you I had don't this, know. I this actually, weird music, Jeremy, that dun, 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 dun. Like it was just... The music is a little it, it strange. Gel, well, the music, the music sounds like that sometimes, but then there are some times where it's more like the, the, uh, the item acquisition rooms in Metroid where it's just like weird sounds and rhythms and like yes this is true like it the, the game has such 
strange audio. Like even the sound of the the Metroids where it's just like <laughs> Yeah. And there's that little sting that plays Yeah, that's right. Um, or whatever it goes. If you, um, if you played it on like a super it's, game, it's Boy. actually kind of it's kind of an eerie game. I feel like in some senses it doesn't have the atmosphere of Metroid, but it's more like it's tenser. Didn't you get better visuals if you played it on a Super Game Boy? No, but that was, but it you was on something. A, you got to play it on a TV instead that of a Game it? Boy screen. That's a good. But it was visual on upgrade. the box for Super Game Boy. Uh, oh, it had it had a. Um, I don't think it had a special like. It had a special color palette built in, but not like the sixteen color Donkey Kong ninety four style. Like, no, um, any any legacy Nintendo game. Uh, Nintendo developed and published game uh, got a color special color palette pre-programmed into the Super Game right, Boy. Right. Um, it's not an upgrade. It's just like here's the preset palette, and you could change it if you wanted to. But they they kind of picked colors that would specially work. I don't know why, but I'm kind of surprised that was chosen as the uh, showcase game for in, the cover in the of US. Super Game Boy. I'm sure yeah. it was it was you know like. Americans love Metroid. Hmm. It was a big series over here. Yeah. Hmm. But so. in terms of story, you are right that it is a major inflection point because on this mission to sort of eradicate all of the Metroids on this planet, Samus comes across the baby. Right. The There's baby. the baby. <laughs> you, you dis- okay, you discover the baby, and that becomes the plot of Metroid 3, Super Metroid. Mm-hmm. And then the destruction you wreak on the ecosystem by getting rid of all the Metroids is the main premise, like the the plot impetus for Metroid Fusion. That's right. So and yeah, all like, of this ties into other M as well because it's sort it of doesn't that, that game doesn't exist actually. <laughs> in never, your never, world, or never in happened. No, I think never we have happened. to. We have to at least acknowledge. We it. have to address it at some point, Jeremy. <laughs> so let me tell you about this fan game that it some idiot made. Oh, I like I like it. Um, interestingly, Metroid Two is the one game in the core series that was not directed by Sakamoto. Oh. It was directed by. Hiroji Kiyotake, who is better known for the Wario games, yeah. and Hiroyuki Kimura, which uh, I, I can't remember where he works. I think he worked on some Fire Emblem games. Uh, don't quote me on yeah. that. I can't. I didn't write it down. But yeah. Kiyotake definitely um, is kind of pals with Sakamoto and the like. Let's let's do weird things with Wario. Yeah, he's one of the key Wario guys. Yeah. There's like two of them. One's named Abe. Last name's Abe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I saw um, just looking up research for these guys that uh, he had uh, Kiyotake had worked on Super Mario Land Two and Super Mario Land Three. Oh, nice. And we're we're sort of uh, the other co-director. And I don't know how true this is. Is listed as a graphic artist for Super Metroid. Is that would oh, that, that make could sense? Be. Yeah, that could that... be. But that... yeah, that makes sense. I mean. A game designer in that era was as much an artist as a uh, as a you know like layout person. So. Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I don't know. Like, I was pretty harsh on Metroid Two uh, a long time ago, and I guess because that was the uh, the re- the retro review on record at OneUp.com. <laughs> um, <laughs> Long before I knew that that one up was going to be a huge thing, um, that became kind of a a running, I don't know, like like a not the expert opinion, but um, definitely sort of a support for people who wanted to trash Metroid Two. But you know, I went back and looked at it when I was doing the Anatomy of Metroid, and uh, I still have some problems with it. But I think, given the limitations of the system. And uh, you know, just given the era, it was it was a pretty smartly designed game. It's not my favorite, and I think it would be great to revisit the concepts of Metroid Two in a more fully realized uh, you know game experience. Sure. And there is a fan game being called uh, being developed. It's been in the works for like. 
10 years. I don't know. It's wow. AMR, AM2R? Yeah. Another Metroid 2 remake. Oh, um, I've heard of this. Yeah, like yeah, it, me too. the guy's still working on it, and I, I hope someday he finishes it because he's really putting a lot of thought into it, um, including adding like legitimate conflicts with the Metroids uh, throughout the game. I mean, Metroid Fusion gave you a taste of it by making the final boss of the game an Omega Metroid. That's right. Which was not just like a bullet sponge. It was this huge, deadly monster, like really, really hard fight. Um, and, like, I would love a game full of conflicts like that. I mean, there were only, like, two or three Omega Metroids in Metroid 2 anyway. Mm. So, like, yeah, seeing that kind of realized and and the Metroids turned into real threats like they were positioned as, that would be pretty great. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, Jose, now it's your turn to tell us how amazing Super Metroid is for an hour. Is it just me? I can't be the only one in the room who loves Super <laughs> Metroid, right? No, the problem Actually, is I, yeah. I love it so much that I've written myself to death about this it. Is a strange, uh, this is a strange connection, and I'll let Jose go on for an hour after I say I'm this. I'm not going to go on for an hour but, about uh, Super Metroid. This, I, this was not told to me before I came in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't like, um, I didn't like Metroid until Super Metroid. You didn't and, like Metroid um, at all. It took exactly, and okay. I didn't even like Super Metroid when it came out. I, I ignored it, and then Jeremy was writing about it all on his website in the late '90s, and it was because of his website that I got it, and I wrote him a thank you email. Wow, like, I don't remember that. In like 1999, I think it was, I, and I kidding. said, "Dear Toasty Frog, thank you so much for recommending this game." <laughs> and uh, you didn't reply. I wasn't insulted, but I just was like, "Thank you for helping me find it." Because like, and even in '94, I was like, "Oh, it's a sequel to that game I never liked. I don't want this." Man, mm. I don't remember that at all. Well, actually, I, I don't think you knew who I was. Yeah, I didn't get to experience Super Metroid until years after the fact. So when the Super Nintendo had come out, I just, you know, we, I, I don't. The state of the economy was okay, I guess, but we weren't doing so hot. So I didn't get, I didn't get that game. And I remember being really upset about that because Metroid. There were only two games on my NES that I swore to up and down as the games that I absolutely. Well, three actually, if you count Castlevania, uh, Metroid. Legend of Zelda and Castlevania were the, my three favorite things growing up. And so when I heard Super Metroid had come out, it was always like, man, that box art looks so good. These graphics look good. How do I not have this game yet? Weirdly, I can't be the only one talking about Super Metroid, though, for the whole time. This no, is not okay. <laughs> actually, like, uh, I, I was reading, like, Game Players Magazine at the time and other magazines, and I remember Game Players wrote a, a preview of it, and they were like, we saw Super Metroid. We weren't impressed. It's just Metroid, but it looks pretty or whatever. And it was like, after, I think I was informed by that, too. Like, oh, I shouldn't care about this because of these reasons, too. Yeah, but, so, but uh, when, you, when you did actually play that game outside of, you know, uh, an interesting opening prologue that ties back into Metroid 2, as Jeremy had brought up. You know, it brings up that the baby Metroid, uh, which Samus had turned into science uh, for research, I guess. I don't know uh, the full context, is, is, uh, is stolen by Ridley. And right there, uh, off the bat, like the adventure begins. And then you end up going back to planet Zebes. Uh, you're going after the space pirates again. It's and worth mentioning that um, in that prologue sequence... There's an escape sequence. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Like it's the whole of Metroid condensed. You explore 
it's just linear, but you you explore, you go into the unknown, see some dead science, you fight a boss, yeah, and then you escape. Yeah. And it's like, well, how do you top that? And how and yeah. a frustrating escape at that because those little gas uh there was like uh sort oh, of graphics steam valves, gas, yeah. steam valves that would hit you and you would sort of uh, get your trajectory would get thrown off. And this was the most in-game story a Metroid game had to date, and I think this is the most in-game story I want in Metroid. Just well, and it like was all just bookend it, you know? Yeah, and then yeah. like, tell me a story through the game events. Don't just like you know, Babylon. Yeah, me. and the way it was silently told, and the way that uh, it was, it was never, it was outside of the opening screen, never delivered by text or voice. You know, you have the opening voice, which was Dan Allison saying, "The last Metroid is in captivity. The galaxy is at peace." I mean, everyone knows what that there is. Should now. More, there should have been more gravitas in that line reading. It's very like, "The last Metroid is in uh, captivity." Yeah, there's I'm, only I'm, so much you can do with like a 14 hertz megahertz. Sample. I guess so. Yeah, on Super <laughs> Nintendo. Um, but uh, what I especially found interesting going back to it was that after that escape sequence, it has a mini tour of the original Metroid yeah. where you end up back in. So the last zone in Metroid, is it Turian or Turin? Okay, Turian. Turian. Sure. Let's do it. Turian. And so you go down there and you see the smoking hole in the ground that was Mother Brain. And then you pass through and you see the space pirates, which I feel like that's the first time you really see the space pirates. Yeah, you're the right. space yeah. pirates mm-hmm. in Metroid and even – I don't remember any of them in Return of Samus. They, they weren't. Yeah, uh, you see them sort of scaling the walls and they shoot at you. Return of Samus has nothing to do with uh, any any of the regular Mother Brain, Ridley, bestiary. There are, the, Ridley's not there. Kraid's not there. Mother Brain's not there. It's totally you and just the Metroids and the, right. the natural wildlife of SR-388. And then it was just sort of adjusting to much like a lot of Super Nintendo games, um, obviously very polished, uh, pretty good graphics. I don't think they were the best graphics on the system at the time. But they still took into account that uh, sort of you can see the direction Samus was facing wasn't a copied sprite. Yeah, you would see like, one was a gun yeah. arm and one was her regular arm. And, and she would flip on your She'd like direction. breathe at certain times mm-hmm. too. You'd see her like – like was that her idle animation? Just like very yeah. like, like tiny like one pixel difference in like her chest plate or whatever. But it was still like no, a No, her tiny... whole body okay. shifted as she breathed. But it was very subtle. It wasn't just like you know Sonic looking at you or whatever. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. All right. So I, I looked up – Jeremy Parrish, Super Metroid, on Google and got 1,310 results. That's why I'm not going to say too <laughs> Are much. Are you like the bulk of Wikipedia citations <laughs> Probably, on this game? Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I've get... written about it a lot. I'm like that, but for bad games. <laughs> no, no um, I just, I'm trying to think of what, what yeah, how there, to even structure the, a conversation yeah, around the, Super Metroid because it's so good. Metroid, Super Metroid is bookended by two of the most impressive and subtle sequences of storytelling that's ever a in a video game. It. Yeah, that's a great way Especially to put it. the beginning because, you know, you get you get to Planet Zebus where you've been before, but you see it through a new perspective. Like you touch down in a different place, you actually have to descend into the underground yourself and you reach the point that you had explored and destroyed and you know, as you're as you're exploring, these security systems activate. Even though you see no enemies, it's just like there's no music. It's just thunder and atmospheric sounds. But then occasionally these lights come on as you collect items, and you're like, "What's going on?" Like it's very it's very ominous, and you know someone's watching you or something's going to attack you. And you finally get your uh, you you get your uh, what's the first weapon you get? Like the Marumari or something, uh, the Morph Ball. Oh, yes. And yeah. then the the enemy base comes to life. Like you've triggered them and the space pirates all attack. That's right. And that's great. Like it it has this buildup. It's like 15 minutes of 
you know, you expect something's going to happen at any moment. And finally it does. There's this great tension and release. And then at the end, of course, there's the whole storytelling where everything kind of comes together. Like the little hints you've seen throughout the, the story as you've played all culminates in this big showdown with the Mother Brain and the Super Metroid itself. Yeah. Uh, and it brings the whole plot line together. And it's definitely before I feel fans started to turn on the notion of Samus having no abilities when she starts the game, which is a trope or an idea that they kept coming back to with later sequels. I feel like Super Metroid was probably the last time people tolerated it very well. I think Metroid Fusion was the first time they had a fiction reason for it to well, justify Prime it. also. Okay. They came out the same yeah, day. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well. Yeah, but, uh, but I do feel that then by Prime 2 and by Prime 3 and by even Other M, it was like, uh, yeah. enough of this. Right. <laughs> yeah. The most powerful bounty hunter in the galaxy, and she loses all the abilities at a drunken night at the cantina. <laughs> I mean, at least Mega Man <laughs> Legends 2 rolls like, sorry, Mega Man, I had to sell all your weapons so that we could repair the flutter. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> no, but, um, but then, you know, you look at, uh, I mean... Super Metroid was also the first game I think I'll ever remember either seeing coverage of, of speedruns about. I feel like it's one of yeah. those games that definitely grew up around speedrunner culture, around breaking sequences and finding ways to break the game. I, I know that you have a history with the original Metroid, I think you've told me, of trying to break and Right, but that, that, that was it different. It wasn't sequence breaking in Metroid. In the original Metroid, it's like finding glitched areas. That's right. I mean, that's what Axiom Verge is all about. It's about that experience. It's, yep. you know... The designer of that game did the same thing as me and poked around to see what he could do with the original Metroid, goof around with passwords and shuffle up walls to where you're not supposed to be. But Super Metroid was different because it's this very tightly constructed game. I mean, it's nonlinear, but it's actually pretty linear still. Like there's a, a sequence, a progression of powers. And there are a few places where you might notice, oh, I can, I can kind of break from that and I can find things. Mm-hmm. I can get like this weapon a little sooner than I was supposed to if I know how to do a wall jump. It gives you these, like, special powers from the beginning, but you don't know about them until yeah. you discover them in the course of the game. There's these little the little guys who, the Etacoons and Dragoras or whatever they're called. Oh, the animals, yeah. Yeah, and they, they teach you how to do wall jumps and how to do the shine spark where you can store up a running charge and fly into the air. That's right. Like, uh, one of those you have from the beginning, the other you get pretty early on. Mm-hmm. But they're never explicitly told to you unless you come into the secret area where they kind of give you an example it's, of how to do it. It's pretty cool. It's so gratifying to go back into the game fresh with the wall jump knowledge. Like, yeah. I can do this from the beginning. Right, and, and if you know that, me. you can do some kind of cool stuff. And you can go places that you're not really intended to go before you're intended to go there. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's very compelling to be able to do that and that sort of turned into its own culture of people who are like well I can do this how far can I take it where can I find like the seams in the world where can I find ways to break the game. Yeah, and the uh, the attract mode also was a way that they conveyed certain ideas to you. And yeah, it like was, the crystal it was flash. very subtle. Yeah, very, very subtle. Like, you wouldn't even have noticed. You're just like, oh, this is just a trailer for what the game's supposed to look like. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. I what is that circle that. around Samus? What What is going on? Yeah, what does that mean? Um, and even, even if you see it, you still don't know how to do it because it's really arcane. Yep. Yep, that's right. But perfectly paced, like really good boss fights. I mean, every every it feels like you can uh, you can't turn a corner without accidentally running to a boss yeah. in some places. But at the same time, they were really satisfying encounters. 
and uh, really tense ones too. Mm-hmm. And even having uh, Samus's ability to aim in what was it like almost eight directions? I want to say it was eight directions. Yeah. Um, which was sort of the customary thing for every Super Nintendo game, right? Not only were they more polished, but they came with um, they they just broke free of limitations from the the initial installments from the games that you played on NES. So it was very much lived up to the name Super Metroid. How am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> doing okay so far. So um, one of the things I really enjoy about going back into Super Metroid is that if you look, you can constantly find little bits of, of information and details you didn't know about. Like if you go into the wrecked ship, okay, so there's a wrecked ship. It's full of ghosts, whatever. Um, but last time I played, I noticed there's these computer monitors. And if you really pay attention to what's happening on the computer monitors, there's like a glitchy graphic of Metroids on there. Oh, okay. So what does that mean? I don't know what it means, but it's fascinating. Like was the ship there to try to find Metroids? Did the ship land, you know, to survey the planet and everyone was attacked and killed by Metroids? I don't know. Maybe it's a space pirate ship that, um, you know, that, that came into some sort of conflict or trouble. It's a mystery, but, you know, there's these little enticing details yes. that you can pick out. There's the the Mocktroids that live in the ocean area, Meridia, that look like Metroids except simpler and they do drain your energy, but you can just kill them with, you know, regular shots. They're not mm. full Metroids. And they're in this kind of area that appears to be in some places like a lab or something. So from that, you can infer maybe the, the space pirates were trying to clone Metroids and, you know, they, they couldn't work it out. So They were the Danny, De, the Danny DeVito version. <laughs> it's hard to say that. <laughs> they had, the, they had the, the recessive weak genes like Liquid Snake. Yeah. Mm. Uh, oh, go. wait, no. Um, that doesn't work. <laughs> that's not how Punnett squares work. But yeah, so like maybe maybe this means that the space pirates are trying to create synthetic Metroids and they couldn't, which is why they needed to abduct the baby Metroid. And so maybe Samus, by capturing the baby Metroid, kind of did their work for them. If you put all this together from that, and I want to say great job, by the way, you would love the From Software, like the Dark Souls games. Like sure, a yeah, lot I mean, of the story yeah. is told that specifically. Thank you for making that comparison, Jose, because I was afraid to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like I'm obligated to, uh, but you did it, so thank you. Yeah, you're but welcome. yeah, I mean, that's, you know, like, it's, it's one of those games that doesn't explain too much. Whereas, you know, the Prime games, as much as I love them, they give you data logs on everything. Mm-hmm. There's no mystery left. But Super Metroid, you know, I just watched Mad Max Fury Road last night. It does the same thing. Like, there's all this detail in the world that if you, you know, if you just want to enjoy the, the the story as it is, that's great. But if you really want to stop and chew on it, you can think, like, why is this that way? Mm-hmm. How did this happen? Like, what's with this detail? Um it's it's something it's a kind of subtlety of storytelling you don't really see in video games that often even even in the metroid games games feel like they have to give you all the details and explain everything and look at this extensive lore that I've created. I have filled up story bibles and you will read them. <laughs> metroid doesn't do that and I no. I really appreciate it. or super metroid doesn't. Yeah. No, yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm glad you brought up that it is bookended by uh two very strong sequences because I mean it's hard to approach a conversation about Super Metroid and not talk about the ending, which was probably, I mean, spoilers, obviously. If you haven't played that, first of all, why are you listening to a retro yeah, really. podcast? But second of all, um, here we go, spoilers from here. I mean, just the idea that, you know, the the baby Metroid 
turns rather large and almost kills you and then leaves you regard like it, it either recognizes you or you're not quite sure what happened, but you do survive. And then you face Mother Brain, who is back and now has a, an uglier form than the last time you saw her. Uh, and just that entire that sequence is really, really memorable, especially because, I mean, can you even die after the baby Metroid kicks the dust? I guess you could, but why yeah. would you? Yeah, why would you? Like, are you so turn powerful. into Samus in her peak form, basically. Yeah, and you just absolutely eradicate uh, Mother Brain, and then there's an escape sequence, and you head off into space. Yeah, no, but it, it's definitely it's one of those moments that I feel like for that series and for that game, it has stood the test of time. Like the 16-bit era ages really well. It will, I, I feel like it will forever age really well. Uh, but Super Metro will always be one of those games, especially because of its storytelling and the bold things that it tried to do. I love the fact that it's actually, like I said, a pretty linear game, but it makes it feel like – it makes you feel like you're discovering things. It makes you feel like you're always in control, even though it's really the level designers who are limiting you and saying, oh, you can go here, but oh, you can't go that way. Maybe you have to go the other way. It does it in a way that – Makes makes you feel like you're figuring this out on your own, and you're forging your own path through the game. It it's a really great illusion that uh, very few games can pull off. And, and Lord knows they're trying. Yep. Uh, yeah. There, everyone and 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 this is not to disparage like Kickstarter or indie development, but there have been so many riffs on Metroid. So, 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 so many. I feel like you can't look under a rock without finding another Kickstarter for a game inspired by Metroid. Yep. And, it, you know, to be fair, I mean, it is one of the purest forms of game art to a degree. Like, people do really recognize and care about it. So it only makes sense that they are inspired to make something like it. Um, but, you know, do they get the formula that right? It depends on the game. Definitely Axiom Verge ties, taps into it really well. Guacamelee oh, yeah. taps into it very well. Um, I'm sure there are others. There are lots of others. Mm-hmm. Bloodstained, I'm sure. Will. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Cave okay. story, right? Yeah. Mm, a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I've been I've been replaying Metroid Fusion lately, and um, honestly, it's not that much more linear than Super Metroid, but the way it presents it makes it seem so much more stifling. It's a really like comparing the two games, and I guess we're talking about Metroid Fusion now, the fourth game in the series appearing after a lengthy like eight-year hi- hiatus, yeah. kind of like with Metal Gear. Wow. Yeah. But an interesting one because it launched alongside a 3D game the same day, mm. right? Metroid Prime and Metroid Fusion came They're out They were like, have it, have it your way, have it both ways every yeah. day. And I bought both of them. How yep. about yep. you guys? Oh, oh yeah. absolutely. Yeah, day one. I could not. Um, I bought a GameCube for that. <laughs> so so Metroid Fusion and Metro, uh, Super Metroid make a really fascinating contrast, uh, studying contrasts, because both do a lot of the same things the Super Metroid just leaves you in silence to figure it out on your own. Metroid Fusion at every turn is like, well, Samus, 
here's what's happening. Here's what you need to do. Here's where you need to go. I mean, there's there's points where the uh, the AI who's giving you directions uh, at the computer terminals is like, you've already been to this area and explored this data room, but I'm going to show you how to get there anyway. Yeah, like it's super didactic, mm. and I I think you know for a lot of Metroid fans, it's really frustrating. And there are there are times when I really wish the game would shut up, but it's interesting because Super Metroid ends with Samus incredibly powerful. Metroid Fusion basically starts out and says Samus is basically the weakest creature in the universe. It, <laughs> it takes away all of her powers and makes her physically weak and debilitated. Um, you know, if you look at the sprites in the game, normally Samus, you know, is kind of like bracing her arm, her gun arm with her hand, like putting her hand on top of her gun arm to kind of contain the power. Hmm. In Fusion, the sprite changes so she's actually ah. holding up her gun hand because it's, you know, it's so exhausting for her to... She looks more hunched over, too, she than is. any she's... other game I've seen Samus in. Yeah, the idea is that um, after she wiped out the parasite or the, the um, Metroids on, on planet SR388, uh, it destroyed the ecosystem and the uh, there's like these biological parasites that infect and, and duplicate other creatures. The X. Yes, the X parasites um, that the Metroid normally the Metroid was, would, would, uh, feed would, on. Yeah, yeah. would feed so on. Yeah, so all of a sudden they've taken over the planet and they infect Samus and they can and nearly kill their, her. Yeah. So they infuse her with like Metroid blood or whatever. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's kind of silly, kind of contrived, but um, it means that one, she's like the only thing immune to these X parasites now. But two, she has the weaknesses of a Metroid, and three, she ha- she doesn't have her power suit. They had to surgically remove it from her and so she's lost access to most of her powers so she has to regain those and at the same time there's a parasite in her form who has like samus at max power abilities walking around and can kill you in like two shots yep, the sax you're, you're like a metroid it. you're weak to ice now so that becomes a big part of it mm-hmm. so it's really interesting it's um it's basically like the game is structured to make you feel weak and Basically, in the final third of the game, you break out of the robots or the, the AI's supervision, and you kind of find your own secret passages through the, the space station. Yep. And so, you know, when it finally comes to that point and you gain back your powers, then you feel like, oh, this is a classic Metroid game, and it really it really clicks. But until then, it's like this exercise and kind of subverting your expectations. I don't think it's always successful, kind of like Metal Gear Solid 2 is not always successful yep. in that front. But I like that they, they tried that. It was something different and kind of risky. And I also, yeah, I also uh, enjoyed that they tried that. And it was it was definitely something that was very different from Metroid, right? You're not used to experience, experiencing a Metroid game where they are having you go through specific tunnels and specific places and genuinely almost pointing to the answer but trying not to at the same time. Um, and I almost wonder why that was decided to be put there. Was it that at that point Nintendo said, hey, Metroid could maybe do better if it appealed to more people? Like it's very hard to to kind of know because I don't know if the answer even exists on record. I will say though that that game that became Metroid Fusion looked very different when they first showed it. Do you remember the first footage of the Game Boy Color? Metroid 4? Yeah, the mm-hmm. Game Boy Color. And then later I think they showed it on Game Boy Advance. And it just looked very different, a very large Samus sprite, um, almost to the effect of what 
I remember Return of Samus looking like. I mean, just mm-hmm. in that the sprite was very big. Yeah. Um, but then it became, you know, Fusion. Um, I still feel, though, like Fusion is kind of the whipping boy in the series for, like, holding your hand too much. And I feel like people I, need to give that game a break. I think I think Other M has uh, improved <laughs> Metroid Fusion's stock think because about, you can see how bad it could be. Yeah. Uh, the thing about Fusion, though, I think that though it's it plays out the way it does because it's for the portable format. I, I think the designers might have thought, like, we don't want you to, to stop in the middle of a play session in the middle of a map not knowing where you're going next, we're going to give you these these goals like in yeah. chunks, so you can play through this in a sitting, save your game, maybe come back to it later. Does that sound? Like I like it that could logic. Or... No, I definitely no, I definitely like that logic. It feels more aware of that than Metroid Two ever was. Yeah. like Metroid Two was also a portable Metroid. And it was just like they threw caution to the wind. It was like, hey, nah, nah, they'll do it. Kill what was it? Thirty <laughs> bosses, they'll be fine. Yeah. And like about the story, I, I just think that like at this point in game development, we were really fixated on putting stories where they didn't belong, or just like elaborating on stories that didn't need to be elaborated on. We see that in Metroid Prime where it just like, like okay, I'm thinking of like things like Morrowind in 2002. Like you can open every book and you can read all the scrolls, but, but in Metroid Prime it's the same thing. Like you can scan everything and get a paragraph of boring text. It's just yeah. like – Well, I'm just surprised too that Miyamoto yeah. didn't stand up and say, hey, guys, this is way too much story because he, he seems to be the very anti-story voice at Nintendo. Yeah, but he's EAD and this was R&D 1. It's a different division. Sure, it's not really sure. his – and it wasn't he wasn't in charge as high Isn't as he is maybe now. Tanabe was he working on with Retro back then too? Uh, so Kensuke Tanabe was so. producer okay. on the first Metroid Prime. Oh, was really? Pretty, okay. I'm pretty sure he yeah. was, unless I'm bugging out. Uh, and uh, you can look that up just to be sure. But I'm pretty sure Kensuke Tanabe worked with Retro on almost every, on every Metroid Prime and yeah, Donkey Kong Country, I think you're which right. I they think eventually you're right. ended up on. Um, yeah, actually, uh, Chris Kohler was just on our show, and he was talking about an interview he had with Kensuke Tanabe where he asked, why did they send you there exactly? Uh, folks can look that up because that's still out there. I do want to see that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, his, uh, his interview? Yeah, yeah, his interview where he asked him about Super Mario Brothers 2 because Kensuke Tanabe worked on that game and no one ever asked. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that his, his resume extends into the Prime series, which yep. was all him. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of um, he kind of transcends Nintendo divisions. It looks like. Yeah, and he was R and D one way back, or or was he EAD? Uh, no, he was EAD. He, he was, was EAD. the director on um, Doki Doki Panic, and then Super Mario Brothers Two. You got USA. it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah, and Bob actually had a great conversation with him where he basically told Bob, yeah, like I the way we approach games uh, and the way I approach the games, I what uh, was about tutorials. You remember? I don't remember my own interview, yeah, so no, please, said, please he, quote no, me. No, he said uh, he basically told you he hates tutorials. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and you you walked that interview, you started talking to me about it. Where like he uh, he said that's why we don't do that. You know, every action that we show you is something that you have to do in that moment. Yeah, and that was the same thing for the latest Donkey Kong Country game. Yeah. It was there was no text. It was just like we're going to throw you into the situation. You know, mm-hmm. give you the tools you need. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I wish people would lay off on Fusion because I feel like Zero Mission, which we're up to that game, right? Which is a remake of the original yeah. Metroid on Game Boy Advance. Um, very, very, I mean, top to bottom remake. And what always shocked me about it, actually, before I get into this, was that it married the fiction that Metroid Prime and Retro had set up. And I guess we didn't talk about Metroid Prime yet, so we might have to take a step back. It married the music, the approach to the mainline Metroid game, which was just like, what? East and West just came together in this project. Yeah, I actually don't think we have enough time in this episode to talk about the Prime games. So ah, that would have to be something separate. But um, I don't. I don't actually know where all the Metroid mythos, the Chozo mythology that shows up in in Zero Mission came from. If it was from Prime, or if it was actually something in the Metroid manga that they were creating. 
that they then folded into Prime. Yeah. I guess Prime came first, but they I feel like they kind of took a scattershot approach with the mythos, whereas Zero Mission and the manga, well, the manga is kind of its own creature. But Yeah, I need to read that the, one. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> okay, maybe I don't need to read that one day. <laughs> but the it's kind of an inspiration for Other M, uh, if that tells you anything. Oh, God. Uh, but the, the, uh, the mythos that shows up in, in Zero Mission is much simpler and more streamlined. But I guess what I mean is from a presentation perspective, it is absolutely in tow with, you know, the, the ch- chanting sort of like music you would oh, find sure, sure, sure. in the Prime games. And even there was a Morph Ball puzzle that was absolutely Metroid Prime in Zero Mission. I'm like, what? Oh, like, yeah. Really? I mean, I, I think they came up with some pretty good um, pretty good designs in uh, Prime, the yeah. Prime games. And Nintendo was like, yeah, okay, cool. Let's let's see how that works in 2D. Yeah. Um, yeah, to me, Zero Mission, uh, I need to replay it, but I honestly feel like it's probably the best Metroid game, even if it's not. What? what? It, it doesn't, even if it doesn't have the impact of Super Metroid, um, I was afraid you know, to say having it. Having come ten years later, but it's just so refined. It, it really takes it takes out all the fat without feeling simplified. It does a really good job of striking a balance between allowing exploration and keeping you from getting too lost. Like it gives you pointers. You need to go this way, but it doesn't tell you how to do it. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't hold you by the hand. It's just like, okay, your next goal is this direction. And it's not really giving you a, giving away anything by saying that because really there's only one direction you can go. But Jeremy, I do feel like part of that did come from what they learned on Fusion. I feel like in Fusion they yeah. were doing the same like, hey, this this they were, but they were there, being they really were suffocating it about it. Oh, absolutely. They were being like, okay, here's the map, boop 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 boop. Okay, switch to the other map, boop 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 boop. So you see the route from one place to another, mm-hmm. and then Adam explicitly says. Okay, this is where you need to go, Samus. Here's what you need to watch out for in the new area. Yeah, oh, there's a new enemy. Be sure to watch out for those. Oh, it's really hot here. Your suit's when, not going to hold up to it. Zero Mission doesn't do that. No, Zero Mission fair. just says, go to this area, and then you discover, oh, crap, there's a new enemy. Or, when, oh, my God, when, the, the my suit can't hold up to the heat. What do I do now? Like, you figure it out on your own. Not to over-defend Metro Fusion, because I agree <laughs> with you, but uh, even when Fusion does sort of spell everything out and is stifling, I do feel like there are discoveries you make along the way that oh, you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, these pipes, these these whole sections, this wasn't even on the map. Like, right. Where, where there am are, I? There right? are times where really you have cool. to go off the map. Yeah, it's and, very methodical in that yeah. when it lets you do those things. But yeah, I, I do agree I'm, with I'm you. Not, I'm not criticizing Fusion as a game. I just feel like they made a mistake in being too explicit about your goals and about taking away all the surprises that you'll find. Sure. And not all the surprises, but a lot of the surprises. Like, you know, when you go into the area where there's the ice parasites that can freeze you and damage you, <clears throat> like if they had just let you discover that, you know, you, you start out fighting one on its own. Mm-hmm. Like that's not enough to kill you. That would have been like – holy crap, I have to watch out for these sure. guys. But instead, Adam's like, oh, yeah, there's a nice parasite. It's going to hurt you. you <laughs> yeah, and he tells it, you, you way run. too much about it. But there were cool uh, discoveries. Like if uh, – I'm trying to remember the exact room, but early on there's a room that sort of like a freezer and you are getting damaged the entire time mm-hmm. you're there. But if you run all the way to the left side, yeah, you'll you find a Ridley. spoiler to Ridley and you'll be like, oh, crap, like this is going to get real later. Or is it dead? Like I don't really know. But I will well, say – Well, then eventually you do come into Ridley's – freezing chamber from the other direction. And when that happens, um, there's an ex-parasite inside of it that flies off and Ridley Mm -hmm. himself crumbles and you're like, oh, Ridley just got totally killed. He's (laughs) dead forever. No, definitely. But uh, to go back to Zero Mission, yeah, from a pacing perspective too, I think it's probably one of the times that they nailed um, 
it on a portable format. Like it just ever, giving you a slight nod to where you're supposed to be going, but then not telling you um, on top of then incorporating like safe systems from Super Metroid and other ideas from every previous Metroid before that. I felt like it really did kind of come into its own. My one criticism though, it just at the end of the day was too short. Like I finished it and I was like, that's it. And they did tack on that uh, epilogue at the end, but it wasn't really very good. That stealth section, like, come on. I didn't care for that. Yeah, I, I don't still know. don't I, care I like the it. stealth section. It has the same sort of, um, it's like a microcosmic version of fusion where you're depowered and forced to sure. play really cautiously. Like there, okay, the design of that area is really similar to some parts of fusion, but done, in my opinion, much better. Like it's more thoroughly realized and more thoughtfully developed. Sure. I think it's a cool twist. My thing, I think, is that it becomes too much trial and error for me. And that's where I became like, uh... That's what happened to me too, yeah. Yeah, I I got frustrated by it Hmm. more than enjoyed it. But I do see what you're saying, absolutely. I still think... Well, as someone who actually likes Metal Gear, I liked the stuff. (laughs) I do agree that I think it it probably is the best Metroid game because it is just like they had the hindsight of after working with Super Metroid of 10 years Mm -hmm. and what they learned from Fusion, of course. And And Elements from Prime. That's a good call. Is there any way to play this? No? Uh, So in Japan, it's it's available on Virtual Console. It'll it'll make it to Virtual Console here eventually. It has to. It has to. Yeah, it has to. But it's been available over there for quite a while now, too, which is really frustrating. Is it on Wii U Virtual Console? On Wii U Virtual Console for GBA. It has been there. Um, I've been hoping for them to put it out, but so far nothing. I've only played it once, and that's when it came out, like, 11 years ago. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have Fusion over here, so we'll get Zero Mission eventually. Absolutely. God, I love Metroid. Yeah. I I I uh I am sad. I mean, does this the, you you're going to ask this question eventually, right? About Metroid. Does this series have a future? Does it have a future? After other M? That's what I'm asking. But what about the timeline? That's a timeline. <laughs> Metroid and it hysteria. Includes Metroid pinball, and I'm pissed off about that. <laughs> Metroid hysteria is what they call it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do want to ask you guys this. I, I don't want to dismiss anyone that, that is interested in the story, but when you think of Metroid, you think of things in terms of a like characters and a timeline and like a story that's ongoing, or just like you're in the moment in in the game, and it doesn't matter what happens before or after. I think they forced all that in already. Like, I can't unsee it. I have to be honest. Like, I feel like Other M, I feel like Metroid Prime, they're very quick to tell you, this is right before Super Metroid, or this is right after such and such. It just never feels right to me. I think a small story evolved naturally in the course of the first three games. That's right. And it came to a very nice final final end. At the end of Super Metroid. And so everything beyond that has been sort of shoehorned in. I I like the story they came up with for Fusion. I think it's interesting and um, kind of does, you know, force you to say, hey, what happens when you kill off every single one of an entire species? What What's the side effect of genocide? Oh, well, I guess it screwed me over. That's not so good. Those micro <laughs> elements, I can appreciate the ma- the macro view of things. Like Ridley as a villain doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Like, I don't get it at all. It's just like a weird like space monster. It's just a cool monster. looking dragon. It's a yeah. space dragon. But That's I hate how they, meant to be. they ascribe like he wants revenge. It's like, no, he's just a big dumb oh, monster. Well, if you whatever. want to talk about that, I mean, <laughs> Other M and that whole revenge yeah, plot. I, yeah. Oh, uh, I, for- I forgot that was even oh, in Other We don't M. have time for that. Too bad. Uh, um, <laughs> five sure. more years. I feel like this was manufactured. We've run out of time. Um, we are running low on time, actually, and there's not a lot of positive to say about uh, Other M. I, I, I'd actually be more interested in talking about Metroid Dread. Like, what would that game have been? What, what do we know about it? Just what the, I know about it is that um, at E3 2005, like the week before E3 2005, I saw a list that Nintendo had distributed to EGM 
that gave them a rundown of what they were showing at the, the, the show. They, of course, they didn't give that to us because why would the people who were actually going to be writing about the games during the show as opposed to, to afterwards yeah. well, need to know the all the sign of print was in control, right? right. Like it was yeah. the, those, those good old days. But they, they gave a list and it was accurate and one of the games on there was Metroid Dread. And I was like, oh, that's going to be so good. Finally, a reason to buy a, a DS. Um, and so Ziff Davis's booth was actually that year just in sight of Nintendo's booth in the E3 conference hall. And we it was like this multi-tiered thing. There was the fishbowl where everyone sat and wrote. But then you could go upstairs to the upper level of it to the deck. And I would stand up on the deck for like half an hour <laughs> at a time and watch Nintendo's video roll waiting for Metroid Dread to come around, and it never did. Mm. I can see you with, like, opera glasses, like, peering through them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, my eyes aren't that bad. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so it just it never happened, and the game disappeared, and... Don't we have, a, like, a weird screenshot of something Metroid-related that was not released? You might be thinking of the Game Boy Color one. That was um, probably it. There was yeah, the Game Boy Metroid Fusion. Fusion. There was a right. bunch. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, for context for folks listening, this was recorded before E3. So if you're listening oh, yes. to this and worth, a Metroid got announced and you're like, what planet are these guys on? We're actually in May of uh, 2015. Yeah, there's egg on my it's face. About, it's about three weeks before E3. So... Maybe they're going to surprise us. I think yeah. five years is enough time to forget. It's like a it's like a millennium in uh, console history. Yeah. But you know, the question is, who would make it? Mm. I don't. I don't think Sakamoto really cares to get back into Metroid. I mean, the the heartfelt story about Samus Samus's rich inner life that he really wanted to tell went over like the proverbial fart <laughs> in church. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think I could be wrong, but you know, he probably was uh, disappointed by that. And I think he has more fun. He's always, yeah, he's always seemed the more experimental type. You know, games like WarioWare and Tomodachi Life. Um, His his Rhythm Heaven. Yeah, Yeah. his his catalog is just all over the place. He makes a lot of games, a lot of weird games, and Metroid is really clearly defined territory. I don't know that there would be much satisfaction in the series for him at this point. Mm. And if he really, you know, took the series in like a hey, let's be fun and experimental direction. I don't know that fans would want that. But Nintendo has made a, a business out of working with uh, – with we- when they do work with Western developers on a game, and I'm not saying the next Metroid is that, but if they did turn to one, um, they would – What do you know, Jose? I don't know anything. But but I will say that you know there are companies that have pledged like, hey, we're working uh, you know, on Nintendo games. Like the guys who made a – or working with Nintendo, like the guys who made Punch-Out, for Yeah, example. I was going to say next level, next level, I would – I would play the hell out of a next level Metroid game yeah, like, because yeah. they would get it. Yeah, you, you they can got turn Luigi's to Mansion, like they got Punch Out. I just hope it's not gonna be like the first game for Nintendo's digital platform like Metroid Crush or something, you know? Like, oh, you mean like for the smartphone thing? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I don't I don't think so. I, I think mean, they'll I, go more mainstream. I think it's not, better it's not the right fit. Their first game for the digital platform is going to be Puzzle and Dragons with Super Mario Brothers. Oh yeah. yeah. Or Nintendo. Like if, that if, that three D S game was not made as a three D S game, it was made as a venture to have a quick and easy port when they go mobile. I feel yeah. like that platform is going to make things like WarioWare and Rhythm Heaven viable again. Sure. In, yeah. that, in that format. Even like Famicom Tante Club. Ooh. Wow. Visual novels. No, but uh, but just going back to that, yeah, I think that whatever studio they decide to pair up with, it, even if it's if it's either next level, I know they do work with Monster Game. Monster Games worked on the port for Xenoblade. They worked on the port for Donkey Kong uh, Country for 3DS. Both games went to 3DS. Um I think that eventually, like, they will mold that game into whatever they want it to be. And hopefully someone like Tanabe 
returns to, to make sure that that happens. Actually, didn't Next Level pitch a Metroid game? And That's got, what people have been saying. Yeah, I think I, I thought I, – I think I saw some – Yeah, probably an unsix, unseen 64 post. Those guys yeah. are really good at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I mean, we all hope it has a future. You know, at the end of the day, it, it is a great series. And I almost wonder how it will go over too just because everyone is so set on making Super Metroid again and, and yeah. cashing in on that nostalgia because they love it and that's fine. But I almost hope that when Metroid does resurface again, that the idea is more than just a Metroid Prime, which I feel would be the most unoriginal. Like, I feel like Metroid Prime, came, like, we didn't get to talk about it, but it came, it went, it kind of burned out. Yeah, Three burned was a great out, yeah. way to end it, and that's it. That's Let all it we need. go. I, I honestly, I, when I look at the Metroid story, I look at the first four games, basically. I, I'm not really interested in the sort of side stories, I think. Wait, is Prime in the first four? No. You don't count Prime? The, oh, Prime is so special. I know you have <laughs> Prime, strong no, opinions. No, Prime's a good game, but, like, the story doesn't add anything. When you start doing this, oh, and then there was that other time Samus fought Ridley, and, and that other other time, and the other, other, other time, and then the other, other, other M time. Uh, that's just... Other, other that's M, M time. Holy on. cow. <laughs> Make that game. Someone. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, but more importantly, do you think then that Metroid's... The concept of the Metroid, is that married to any future installments? Like, do, they, do you have to have a Metroid game with a Metroid in it? Could Samus do something else? Can Samus I would be like to see Metroid... Else? Yeah, drop the Metroids. I, I think that they've they've really taken that whole like oh but we were secretly making metroids Mwahaha, we're secretly evil and cloning the bad guys like okay we've seen that like three times now let's yeah. let's let it go what what if metroid dread was called dread because samus is like at war with her own body like the metroid component of her their, her new dna and that's a great that's a good uh angle only what because... if she's what if she's on the run, what if she is the last Metroid now? Yeah, and like, the idea that it's post-Metroid Fusion, which right. at the end of the day, that story is kind of grim, the way that thing ends. Because yeah. she is to some degree. Well, is it grim? What, I if, what if Metroid Dread started with the last cap, me, the last Metroid is in captivity, the galaxy is p- at peace, and it's Samus in jail. <laughs> and Samus is like a fugitive from the Galactic Federation now because she blew up an entire space station and also a planet. And that's kind of bad. So I also think that Super Metroid and then later fan creations and other things have presented the Metroid creature as something that's cute. So it's very hard for that thing to be scary anymore because whenever I see a Metroid like as fan art or someone like makes plushy of it or whatever, it's like, look at this cute little creature. So now this the terror is gone, I think. I don't, I don't know. know. When I, I see I them feel... in the games, the 2D games especially, I'm still like – Oh crap! Mm. I think yeah. I think the Prime games kind of weakened them. Maybe um, no, not at all. Oh no, the, they scared worse, me they? equally. Corruption, in the Prime where games. where there were like five different kinds of Metroids. No, know. but I'm thinking more to Metroid Prime One, and especially even the Metroid Prime itself. I was terrified <laughs> walking into that boss fight. I was like, "What is this going to be?" Because all you've been reading for the past like maybe 15 minutes or half an hour before that fight was, man, that we cannot control this Metroid Prime. It killed like 18 scientists the other day. Why the heck do we keep this thing? Like it was, I don't know. I walked into that room like terrified. And that boss fight ended up feeling really satisfying at the end of it. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just the standard larval form yeah. Metroid. Sure, the little sure. jelly piss, fish guy. They scared me too. Like, I don't know. In, in the, especially like Zero Mission, um, they seem so much bigger than mm. they had been in the previous mm. games, and they're fast and ruthless. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like they're pretty, they're pretty intimidating. 
Yeah, they can fair. make them scarier. Sure. They can I give like them it. angry eyes like <laughs> Kirby. No. <laughs> All right. So we do need to wrap it up. Um, I guess we asked the question I was going to end on. Thanks for nothing, Jose, if the Metroid has a future. Um, Sorry about that. No, that's okay. We, we didn't answer it. Did we answer it? Kind of, yeah. Okay. We answered it. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. So I, I guess what we didn't really talk about is what would you like to see in a potential next Metroid game? Not who's going to create it, but what do you want? You've said what you don't want. You don't want another Prime. But what do you want? It's going to sound crazy, but RPG or roguelike elements, think about that as you will. That's it? That's all i got to say. How, how That's a that, really how short that elevator ride. I don't know. Dark but Souls. If, nope, not Dark Souls. <laughs> Is that how you say it to him? Dark I love Souls. it. <laughs> but if it comes back, like Jose said, I don't want to see it trying to be the thing everyone is trying to be now because it's no longer a unique experience. I want to see it trying to do something new while resting on certain fundamentals that we like about it. And maybe turning it into a roguelike or an RPG or something like that could reinvigorate the series. I don't know. I don't design games. I'm just throwing that out there. No, but I like uh, I like that answer in that it be something it have something new, but still lean on things that you remember. And I, that's kind of the quintessential Nintendo game for, mm-hmm. for the most part, right? Any any installment in the in any of their sort of uh, catalog series, the ones that you know do really well, do lean on that. Um, I don't want another Prime game, and I'm very clear to people that I feel like Prime ran its course. But I do want something that still captures that exploration and something that delivers on the idea of Samus getting powered up without having to necessarily take everything away from her at the start. Like, I almost wonder, is that possible? Hmm. Because I am sort of tired of the reset button that happens with every Metroid game. And I feel like fans are tired of it, too. Like, it's exhausting. The last time they could, they, they used narrative to try and justify it. Oh, she's an obedient soldier. She's not. She's a bounty hunter. What is this? That was the worst. What is this strangeness? Yeah. What is this thing you're talking about? Um, so, because to me, the exploration is such an integral part of that game. Like looking up at a part of a screen and saying, I can't get there yet, but at some point I'm coming back here and I'm going to get whatever that is. I love that about the older games. And when any, a lot of the games that try that today, take Strider, take uh, Guacamelee to some extent, they are putting colors on those doors. They are putting them on the map for you to see. I don't want that mm. because it takes, it subtracts from that game design to me. So I've thought a lot about this. (laughs) Here it comes. Here it comes. No, I mean, what I said earlier about the game starting with, you know, the last Metroid is in captivity, the galaxy is at peace, and it's Samus incarcerated, and she escapes from jail and is basically being hunted. So it's like what I'm seeing is, you know, at the end of of Metroid Fusion, like her powers and abilities are a part of her now. They're not part of her suit. She can't have them taken away. So you don't depower her. But what you do is you put her up against terrible odds. So you have, you know, the full suite of powers at the end of Metroid Fusion from the very beginning, but you're up against, like, the entire Galactic Federation, and you don't want to kill people even though you're being hunted. So it becomes a game about, like, the the Metro, the, the SAX sequences for Metroid Fusion on a grand scale, mm-hmm. a bigger, more open world where you have to hide and evade enemies. Not a stealth game, uh, but more one where you're a fugitive and you have some kind of goal that will exonerate you. I don't know what. And that's your objective. And there's still like the Metroid-style gating throughout the world, you know, hatches and and, 
other things like that, but they don't work with missiles and bombs. You have to find a new power-up sequence in addition to the abilities you have, new new tools to find new areas. There's no such place as a safe space in this game. Like, it would be, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to, like, imagine what Metroid Dread means and constantly being hunted and knowing there's nowhere you can go to be safe, that, you know, there is this kind of dynamic element of enemy soldiers circulating the map hunting for you. That would be really interesting. I don't know if it would be Metroid, but it would be different and unique, and I would really like to play it. Mm. But that's probably not what they'll do. They'll probably <laughs> just make, you know, another Super Metroid, Metroid kind of game. Yeah. But that would be that would I'd be play it. that would be great. Yeah. I would yeah. love that. Post Metroid Fusion, it definitely will be interesting to see something like that. Anyway, um I guess that's probably enough. That's almost two hours of Metroid talk. By God, we've really Wow, we've We're only at one thirty four on this. Oh yeah? Yeah. Feels longer. Well when I add music it'll be super long. I guess we could <laughs> How long are these tracks. We could we could talk about uh Metroid Prime Pinball. Or uh, uh I know no. where it is in the timeline. Yeah, or well, what about um Metroid Prime Hunters, which was just oh uh, Yeah, that game was mm, Well okay. it was made by NST. It was a tech demo, let's be fair. That's what it was. It was hey guys, you could play Metroid Prime with a stylus. But would you ever want to? That was the inevitable question that maybe people did not ask. <laughs> yeah, let's not belabor the point. We'll, um, we'll, we'll revisit Metroid at some point to talk about the Prime games. Oh. And maybe there will be something cool this year at E3 or next year at E3 that we can talk about a new jump start for the series. If nothing else, we can talk about how much we love Axiom Verge. I'd be okay with that too. Yep. Anyway, uh, that will wrap it up for this episode of Retronauts, another Metroid episode. Uh, I have been Jeremy Parrish, and with me this week has been, tell me about yourselves. Uh, Jose Otero. I work for IGN, uh, mostly handle some Nintendo stuff, but I'm known to do Destiny and other coverage. Well, I meant uh, like your Twitter handle and stuff. And Twitter handle is Jose, at Jose underscore Otero on Twitter. You can follow me there. Bob? I am Bob Servo on Twitter, and I also write for US Gamer. Please go there and read everything. And I'm GameSpite on Twitter. You can find me at usgamer.net. You can find me at other sites. Um, you should check out anatomyofgames.com. I've broken down the design of Metroid, Metroid 2, Metroid or Super Metroid, and Metroid Fusion. By the time this uh, episode airs, I might have moved on to Metroid Zero Mission 2, talking about kind of the, the way the levels work and the design works. Uh, it's relevant to this episode, so have a look at it. Um, and as for Retronauts, you can find us at Retronauts.com. You can support us through Patreon, patreon.com slash Retronauts. You can follow us on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Facebook, on Dasher, on Dasher, on Vixen. Uh, Nixon? Uh, Nixon, yes. And Spiro. Spiro Agnew the Dragon. Yeah. These are some weird social networks <laughs> you're following. <laughs> what about Barry Goldwater? We are not on Instagram or on Tinder, but you never know. Um, yeah, we update every week. We love it when you go to iTunes and click the little subscribe button and love it e- even more when you click the little five-star button and write a nice review. So please consider doing that. Um, again, you are more than welcome to support us on Patreon so that we can continue funding this podcast. And if nothing else, just listen to us each week on our blog or at US Gamer or on iTunes or wherever. 
And stick around because next week we'll be back with a micro episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jose, for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Samus, for being cool. Thank you.